Hi, I'm your host, Rowan Tonkin, and welcome to Being Planful, the show for FPNA leaders and planning experts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Planful. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Glenn Snyder. Glenn is the head of FPNA at Global Growth, and he's had a raft of amazing uh, experiences at some some fantastic brands, uh, whether that be in roles of FPNA or in strategy. So, Glenn, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rowan. Appreciate you being here, having having me here. Yeah, no problems. We love having guests like yourself that uh, that can help our audience listen and learn and understand the role of FPNA better. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about some of those experiences that I just mentioned? Sure. So uh, I started my career, what feels like a very, very long time ago, uh, at, a, at a large regional bank on the West Coast of the US. And I was a commercial loan officer for about three years. And as my position became more about bringing in business, I realized I was not really the sales guy, but I loved doing the analysis. I loved doing the underwriting. So I took a little pivot in my career, went over to a company called Franklin Templeton. I spent seven years at Franklin, where I was uh, my first two years an international financial analyst in the FPNA group, and then uh, moved into a group for my last five years it was called Global Portfolio Services, and it was basically a combination of FP&A and corporate strategy, specifically focused on the portfolio management and trading side of Franklin Templeton and uh, their portfolio management operations all over the world. Uh, after, after my time at Franklin, I moved to Visa, where at the time Visa was a not-for-profit company, and I was hired as the director of profitability. So that was a little weird, uh, but I was making a bet that Visa would go through an IPO because MasterCard had announced that. And two years later, Visa did go through their IPO. So all of a sudden I was the director of profitability for a company that was learning how to become profitable. So that was pretty cool. Uh, my last year at Visa, so I, actually I should say, I was in that role for about four years. And then my last year at Visa, I moved once again into strategy, specifically uh, global consumer product strategy. So I was doing a lot of the planning analytics strategy around consumer credit, debit, and small business, which made up about 90% of Visa's global revenues. After wow. Visa, I moved over to uh, another financial services company called Charles Schwab. Um, I spent five, a little more than five, the first two and a half years within corporate FP&A, supporting a whole bunch of different organizations, including the international group. I was about to move into a larger role and move away from international when the executive vice president of international said to me, hey, wait a second, I don't want to lose you. How about you come over, report to me and run my strategy team? At which time I said, you don't have a strategy team. And she said, yeah, how about you build one out for me? So that was a pretty cool opportunity. Uh, I, so I built out and ran international strategy for Charles Schwab for my last two and a half years. And then I left Schwab and went to another public company that most people haven't heard of. It's called Digital Realty. They are the second largest data center REIT in the world. Uh, they're in about 19, 20 or so different countries, uh, almost 300 different data centers that they own and manage all over the world. And uh, they're actually in the S&P 500, but they had no corporate FP&A team at all. So I was hired as the vice president of corporate FP&A to build out a team from scratch, which was really exciting because I got to really help mold and, and change the way the company looked at internally, the, the internal management of its corporate finance area. 
Uh, and I was there for about three and a half years, and then I was approached to uh, go to where I am now, which is Global Growth Holdings. It is a private equity firm, and I am the head of FP&A. Uh, Global Growth itself has about 1.2 billion or so in annual revenues and owns about 125-ish uh, operating companies in 18 different countries. Wow. <laughs> That's... um. What what really struck me there, Glenn, was um, how you've uh, I don't know danced is maybe the right word or maybe the wrong word, but but danced between FP&A and strategy roles your your whole career, um, you know different stints across there. I, I'd I'd love for you to talk about you know FP&A and its. Um, its similarities, its differences, um, some of the nuances between that and strategy, or whether you fundamentally believe they, they are one and the same? They're definitely not one and the same, but there's overlap. Uh, you know, when you're an FPNA, it's more about the numbers. You got things that are core to FPNA, budget variance analysis, running budgets, running forecasts, those types of things. It's really about the financial, the revenues, the expenses. You could bring in business metrics and that starts to now bridge some of that gap between core finance and strategy because now you're talking about what's driving the business on the strategy side it's really about more of the external marketplace where are you where are you going very much kind of like a budget but to do it not necessarily around financials but around the business itself how do the competitors come into to play uh, what about the different market dynamics? Are there different regulations in different locations? Those types of things that you have to have a much bigger, broader perspective. And to be honest with you, Rowan, the way I look at it and the way I try and manage an FP&A team is to sit right on that line between strategy and FP&A. Because when you're going over and you're helping your business units, you know, whether that be marketing or legal or sales or operations, or whatever the, heck the, the business unit is, and you're helping them achieve their goals, you can't just do it from only a finance perspective because then you're a one trick pony. You have to go over and look at in a way the, the whole circus and say, you know, what is the customer aspect, the product aspect, the market aspect, help that business leader achieve their goals. And now you become a much more valued and trusted partner to the business than just being their finance corp. Yeah. So uh, you, you mentioned before, you know, FP&A and strategy, aren't the same, but they're, you know, conjoined, you know, in the middle of the Venn diagram, you love to sit in the middle of that Venn diagram, you know, joining both, right? That's, that's it exactly. Uh, you know, it is, sometimes it's a fine line to walk. Uh, I had mm -hmm. an executive that, uh, he was the, the senior vice president of FP&A, Charles Schwab, and he called me into his office one day and said, hey, Glenn, you know what? I feel like you're getting a little too close to the business. We have our priorities in finance. You have to be supporting finance. And I explained to him, I said, totally understand that. What we do in finance, we bring a certain discipline. We know how to analyze data. We make sure everything ties out, right? We want to make sure that the numbers are aligned. But when you could go over and get closer to the business and take their strategies, their ideas, the direction that they're going, and you apply the finance discipline, that line, if you could stay on that line, is very, very powerful. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, we we talk a lot on 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 this show about the the partnership and the the advisory that FPNA brings 
to uh, to the business units, and and that's what you're talking about there. The interesting part is you had an executive basically tell you that you're being too partnery, uh, <laughs> right? You're providing, you know, almost crossing the line, yeah. so to speak. And, and how do you how, how do you find uh, sorry to, sorry to cut you off there how do you find that that balance right between being FPNA and strategy and what are some of the crucial skill sets that you need to straddle that line successfully that that you talked about you know the, the number one thing is something that I was awful at at the beginning of my career and it's empathy it's understanding. Your business partner, when, you have, when you're sitting across the table from somebody or you're sitting on the other side of a Zoom meeting or whatever it happens to be, put yourself in their position. What do they want? What do they want to get out of that meeting? What do they, what do they need help with? And that's what you, you as a finance partner should be going in thinking about. Because many times finance people go in and they say, hey, when I'm meeting with my business partner, there are things that I need to achieve. I need explanations for these variances. I need to understand where we're going with our forecast, whatever that happens to be, fine. But if you're only looking at it from what you need and not from what the business needs, it's not really a partnership. And so you've got to go and think about what is it that the business partner needs from me? What else can I be doing? How can I help them? And oftentimes what happens is I've run into this at many companies. The business partner sees you as a finance person and that's it. It's, no, 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 you, you go over, you do my budget. I'm not interested in talking to you about other things that are going on. I, I have my own team that I talk to about this. If you could be proactive and be thinking about how to solve their problems without them even asking you. And in those meetings, you come back and say, hey, look, you know what? Here's, here's your business revenue. Here's what you've been doing. And I went over and I pulled some client data and I did some client segmentation for you. That's not, you know, from a finance perspective, that's really easy to do. Oh, by the way, here's also, here's a breakdown of your revenue by product. And here's your concentration of revenue within products. And now all of a sudden you say, you know what, I put this little dashboard together because we in finance, we're good at doing dashboards. We go over and put that together. And now you present that back to the business. And that business leader will typically look at that. Their eyes will get really big and they're going to say, oh my God, I didn't know that you could do this. I didn't know you could put some of this together. I've been looking for something like this. And now when you could go over and you could marry the financial data to the business metrics and how the business is actually being measured by the CEO, now you're finding that sweet spot, that, that line that you're, you're, you're straddling between strategy and FP&A. And now you become a much more strategic partner than just a finance partner. And so you talked about, you know, Empath that empathy, right? And and that being something that you weren't so good at when you first started. Do you have any yep. experiences, I guess, or um, advice of how to get better at that, right? Like it's, it's not something that um, comes natural to everyone. And uh, I think it's fair to say that, you know, in finance, we, we tend to, to not lead with emotion first, right? We're much more part of the logic brain than the emotion brain. And and I think it's a common trait that, you know, uh, folks that I talk to, that it's a skill that they need to learn. So what advice can you give or, or how can people go and learn uh, to, to kind of change that behavior? The first thing is practice. That's, that's it. You gotta go over and you gotta practice it. And how do you practice it? You do it by asking questions. You do it by listening. 
but ask questions about for to the person that you're talking to ask them about what they want what their needs forget about finance forget about your role and your needs ask them about their needs and then the next time you go back think about what they had said were their needs and see if you could go over and proactively put some kind of solution together for them that shows the business partner that you're thinking about them you're thinking about beyond the finance side of things but you're trying to get them to where they are whatever their problem happens to be how you could go over and help them solve it and the more you do that the more it becomes a habit and i'll tell you it's a real quick funny story when i was at charles schwab uh, they had everybody take these uh, a survey that's run by Gallup called Strengths, and search for different characteristics and says, "Here's what you do really well, and here's you know where they don't say that you don't do it well, but it's it's what you're really strong in and maybe not so strong in." Mm-hmm. Out of the 34, number 33 for me was empathy, and when I saw it, <laughs> I was like, "Oh my God, no, 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 this is not right!" And I went over and I talked to the HR person and I said. I said, no way. I, I'm like, maybe earlier in my career, but now I like, I do this, you know, I, I've worked really hard to be good at empathy. And the woman says to me from HR, she says, that's the point. It's not that you can't do it well. It's that you had to put in extra effort and you had to do it. You had to really work at it to become good. It's not that you can't do it. And so it was kind of funny, but it shows you it is not something that I was doing naturally. But now I do it without even thinking. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, it, it's it's our skills and talents. Uh, none of them, I don't think, are just given to us. We all, we all have to work at them. There's some that come much easier to us than others. But, uh, you know, uh, one of those, I think it's a skill um, to be empathetic. I don't think it... Some people grow up in environments where they learn it um, much earlier than, than many others. And, and um, it, it's just a really interesting trait that we hear a lot of on, on this show that um, folks want to become more empathetic to their business partners. We talked a little bit about how to do that, which was a little bit more about communication and teamwork. Can you talk about um, how you, you have built your teams, especially, you know, at some of these fantastic brands, you, you've led teams, you've been, you know, head of FPNA, you've been head of strategy, that's a lot of teamwork in, involved, not only in just the, the finance world, but the cross-functional collaboration. Talk to us about that, you know, that, that concept of communication and teamwork and how you are, how you're trying to instrument that within your, your the teams that you build. To be honest with you, it is at the core of success for anything you're doing is communication and teamwork. Uh, number one, you cannot accomplish anything on your own, especially at a company. You have to be working with other people. People support you, people provide you with information, people are answering questions for you. So you have to recognize you're always part of a team. And the one thing that you that's really important is to one, acknowledge the people on the team because if you are a team member and you're not the team leader, you don't want the team leader to take all the credit for the work you do. So when you become the team leader, make sure you go over and give credit where credit is due. That is a very simple thing. I always look at it when I lead my teams, I don't want anybody to know about anything that I'm doing because I want to set my team up for success. And if my team looks good, if everybody who works for me, if they go and their business partners and whoever they're working with, they come back and say, wow, 
you know, Fred over there, Fred's fantastic. And, you know, Sally is just such a wonderful person to work with. I naturally get credit because I'm the leader of the team. So I try and put my team in front of me. And that's one of the, the real important things because it gives them better exposure. But what's really important is to make sure you're not setting people up to fail as well. So you always want to go and practice, rehearse, go through and double check everything that your team is doing to make sure that your team is putting their best foot forward. And then if, if, if everyone outside the team seems, sees nothing but success, your team looks great. It's okay to fail and failure is a great way to learn, but you try and keep those failures within the team. And you as a leader, you wanna cap capture those and make sure that the team learns from why that, why that failed or why that didn't work. So that when they go out to people outside the team, all they do is see that those those outside people only see success. That's a that's a great mantra to to keep the failures within the team and and explain it so people understand you know how to, how to improve. When you think about uh, communication and teamwork, there's there's a lot of there's the hard skills right of of. Um, doing that analyst work, right? And, and that, you know, that requires communication, that requires teamwork. But then there's the soft skills of communication and teamwork. How have you, um, uh, I guess there's, there's two questions here. How have you struck the balance between um, building a team that has all of the great hard skills that you need to get the job done, need to, you know, uh, make sure everything's working and humming and building that FPNA machine? And on top, layer in the soft skills to make them a high-performing team that that ultimately, you know, gets individuals promoted and gets them moving up their career path. Well, the first thing I'm a big believer in team communication, and you know, everybody has a role they have to play the role, but they have to be communicating. And I'm a I'm a big baseball guy. You could see the baseballs behind me on the wall. Um, so I like to use this little baseball analogy. I could be the greatest shortstop in the world. I could field every single ground ball and make beautiful throws over to first base. If I don't have a first baseman who goes and stands on the bag and catches the ball, I get nobody out. So it doesn't really matter how great of a shortstop I am if I don't have my first baseman. So you have to have those different people playing differently. And when you're building a team to build a high performing team, you don't want everybody with the same skill set and everybody thinking the same way. You want people who have different experiences, who come from different angles. It's always great to be able to promote from within, but at the same time, hiring people from other companies brings in a different perspective. So it's good to have that kind of mix. And you want to have communication that is completely open. I've always told the people on my team, anytime, anywhere, they want to go over, they want to talk to me, you know, we go into my office, we get on a phone call, whatever it happens to be, they could say anything they want in any way. I'm not going to hold it against them. They, different story when we have invite other people into the room, right? But between us, totally open because I need to know what they're thinking and why they're thinking it. And then I could determine, wow, that is a fantastic idea. Yes, let's move forward with that. Or you know what? Here's the thing you're not thinking about. And so let's go over and adjust for that to make that idea better. And those that type of communication is absolutely critical. So to me, it's, it's just that open door policy say anything, throw it up on a blackboard or a whiteboard or whatever, and just throw the ideas out there. And there are no bad ideas. In fact, I'll tell you a quick little story. When I was at Franklin Templeton, my, my, I was, this was my first true FP&A role. 
I drove my boss nuts. I would walk into her office probably once a week and say, hey, I got this great idea. What if we did this? Nine times out of 10, she's like, no, that's an awful idea. Here's why, get out. You know, <laughs> and, and I'm like, okay, fine. But one out of every 10, she would come back and say, oh, that's a really good idea. Okay, let's go and do that. And we came up with stuff that changed the way the company worked. So it was really cool. But if I said, well, wait a second, my hit ratio is only 10%. And I, so maybe I shouldn't be wasting her time on those ideas. I probably wouldn't be coming up with those ideas that actually work. Two things happen when you throw out ideas. Number one, it's a great idea that could change the company. Or number two, it's not a great idea, but you learn why. Either one of those outcomes is a really positive thing. So I highly encourage my team to just constantly be brainstorming and pitching ideas. And let's talk through that. You don't want people to start running off, you know, hey, I got this great idea. I'm going to go work on it until it's solved because that might, they might be going down the wrong path. At the very beginning, do a little brainstorming, make sure everybody's on the same page. If it's a great idea, great, move forward with it. If it's not a great idea, that's a great learning opportunity for the employee. And and how do you, how do leaders, like in, in that scenario at Franklin Temple, your leader obviously had created a, a space and environment uh, where you felt comfortable doing that, right? You're, you're taking someone's very valuable time, uh, I, I'm sure, that, right? And and you've got a one out of 10 hit rate. Obviously, you know, it, it took that one, um, that one, you know, one, um, one home run to help you kind of get <laughs> get the, the permission to keep going back, right? But um, how do you create that space well, as a leader for folks to do that? So to be honest with you, I got yelled at a lot. <laughs> it wasn't um, it wasn't something that she was like, hey, here's the, here's the approach I want to take with the team. Uh, it really comes down to something that I look for in employees. And to me, it's, it's one of the most overlooked things in any role. And that's courage. You have to have the courage to go over and put yourself out there and say, hey, I got an idea. Now, you don't do it publicly. You don't do it in front of the CFO that, you know, those types of things. But you go to your direct manager and you say, I got this idea. And you be, you know, you have the courage to be willing to pitch it and to be willing to be rejected. That's okay. Once again, learning opportunity. Um, to be honest with you, I mean, I wasn't kidding when my boss said, get out, because many times she actually just said, get out of my office, you're wasting my time. So I had to have a little bit of a thick skin there and to absorb those. Uh, and so not every boss is really open to that saying, yeah, pitch me all your ideas. Uh, to me, as a leader, I never want to shut down that creativity for my team because that's when you miss the great opportunities. You know, and it's also a great opportunity to teach your staff. So for me, I always try and encourage that. Not every boss is like that. However, I look at it as, as you as an employee, it's up to you to go over and have that courage to propose those ideas, to have that conversation. That doesn't mean you go into someone's office and interrupt a meeting or when they're on a phone call and say, wait, hang up the phone, I got an idea. But you look for the right opportunity, you know, you send them a little IM or an email and say, I got something I'd like to run by you, let me know when you have five minutes. And most, most bosses will go over and say, oh yeah, you know what, come by at this time or whatever. And then you, you wait for that right moment. But it's, it's something that you as an employee, it's a great way to stand out. And one of the big things, I mean, it goes back to, you know, the technical skills and the, and the soft skills, Rowan, that you were talking about before. And the technical skills allows you to come up with a potential solution. 
it's the soft skills that when you are pitching it and that idea, that big picture, hey, here's where it could fit in. Here's that problem that maybe I wasn't even asked to solve that I might be able to solve. It's showing that you can come up with those ideas and see them through that makes people think about you at a whole different level. And that's really those soft skills that will allow you to advance through the organization. Yeah, you, you called it courage, Glenn. I would call it courage with persistence. <laughs> there's one, one thing to yeah, be courageous. There's a, there's, a, there's a second thing to be courageous on a frequent basis. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, some of the things that, uh, you know, and, and, and to be honest with you, what really drives it after a while is confidence. You know, you're going to go over, yeah, you're going to fail at some things. You're going to get some things wrong. The biggest thing is when you fail at something, don't repeat the mistake, learn from. And as long as you could do that, you're going to go forward on things. But that those, those, one, those one or two successes that you have start to build and grow, and you get more and more as you start seeing that bigger perspective. You're brought into other meetings that go over and teach you more about the organization that makes you more valuable, helps you come up with more ideas and so on. And then the really challenging part is when you're in that meeting with 20 other people, and you go and you say, wait a second, I have an idea. And to be able to say that in front of a bunch of executives, that really comes from confidence. Early in my career, I probably was not doing that, certainly not as often as I do it today. But it is one of those things that as you start getting a sense that, hey, you know what, my ideas are actually not that bad. And you start seeing some of those successes, you, it builds that confidence and let that confidence build within you. Not to the point that you're arrogant, but to that you are to, to the point that it gives you the courage to be able to propose an idea in a broader setting. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. I, I think it's it's something that um, it's hard to feel confident earlier in your career, right? Because you you we all suffer from imposter syndrome. No matter what, uh, no matter how how high you get in an organization, you you still think to yourself, "Why am Why am I here?" Um, and you know, why are people trusting me to do this? And uh, and eventually, you, you have the realization that we're all suffering from that, and you may as well try things. And and that 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 realization, I, I think, is huge for many people. It really you start to see them unlock themselves in in that confidence because they're like well what what's the worst that could happen i learn from you know i learn from why that opportunity is not a good opportunity to to your point earlier well you know on top of that there are many times in my career i've had to reinvent myself and you know i think about when i moved from franklin to visa was a really good example because i was not a great manager i was not great at empathy as i said when i started my career and those were early years that I was at Franklin Templeton. And I had a reputation there. And by the time I was getting towards the end, I, I really felt like, wait a second, I'm not that same guy I was seven years ago. I've really changed, but in, in the eyes of a lot of people, I hadn't. And so when I went over and changed companies, it really gave me that opportunity to you know, start with a clean slate. And now all of a sudden, I didn't have that excess baggage. And I'm not going over and saying, hey, you know what, if you're having a hard time, go quit your job and go work somewhere else. No, of course not. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there, there are times where you feel like you kind of hit a wall at a company. And when you, you know, if you feel that you've moved beyond where you actually are, that's a good time to maybe go look for a new opportunity. The important thing is, is that when you make that change, make sure you know 
I want to bring these things, these skills along with me, and I want to leave this baggage behind and really make a conscious effort to do that. And when you do it, you could really just change that trajectory that you're on. If you end up making similar mistakes at the new company, you're still going to be fighting against that same wall. And it's going to be hard to overcome. Yeah, 100 percent. So, Glenn, I'd like to switch gears a little. We've talked a lot about kind of uh, ideation, communication, teamwork, and, and, and really communicating on ideas. I, I want to pivot into you, you've run a lot of FP&A teams, and uh, I, I think our listeners would love to hear from how do you structure your FP&A teams? How do you structure kind of the core fundamental processes? Some perspectives of how you like to run FP&A within an organization and um, really kind of get that perspective as, as kind of what is, what is Glenn Snyder's perspective of what is really FP&A and how can you make it that most high-performing organization in terms of structure, in terms of fundamentals, in terms of ways that you want the business to even work and operate? That's a great question. And to be honest with you, I don't really have an answer for it. <laughs> uh, it really depends. And it depends because it depends on the size of your organization. Right now, I manage a team of 17 people. I have enough capacity that I could put people into different functions and move them around. When I started a digital realty, I was the only employee in corporate FPNA. And the team, I built mm. it out to have two people reporting to me but I built it in a very efficient way. And that's why we, we kept the team very small, but those people were wearing different hats at different times. I have a team of 17 right now, so I don't need to, I could actually bifurcate those hats and say, hey, this group is gonna do this, this group is gonna do that. So when it comes to structure, and when it comes to especially building out a team, you can't go into a situation with a preconceived notion, right? It's kind of like saying, okay, I'm going to go buy a plot of land and I already have the, the design for the house that I'm going to build. But if you buy a small plot of land, the house might not fit on it, right? So mm -hmm. you have to make sure you understand with what you're starting with and then design from there. Now, with that said, what I will tell you is there are a couple core functions that I really like to make sure that, that we work in. Sometimes you, you do multiple functions, but there are a couple of key things that are really important. It all starts with the finance business partner function. Finance business partner is the ones who are going to be interacting with the various business units, doing budget variance analysis reporting as just a core function of what FPNA does. It works with the business units on budgets, forecasts, project analysis, strategy, anything else. They become the one point of contact that the business has to finance and they could come to that person with anything. And that one person, they'd learn the business, but then they also work within the finance organization to make sure they're pulling in the right people, whether it be accounting or treasury or whatever, whatever the needs happen to be. So that finance business partner is absolutely key. Now, after that, there is sometimes a centralized revenue team or consolidation team. Oftentimes, and I saw this a lot at Franklin Templeton, you would have, you know, asset management or advisory revenue. Well, the portfolio management teams were the ones who were actually making the portfolio decisions about what to invest in. So they were saying that was their revenue. The sales team would, would say, hey, wait a second, we're over there bringing in the assets in. So it's those assets that we're earning the revenue on. 
So therefore, that's our revenue. And what you end up with, with all these different business units, when they try and you know, say, here's my revenue expenses, you end up with 400% of the company revenue and only 50% of the company's expenses because nobody wants to take that. Everyone wants, <laughs> everyone wants to show how profitable they are. So you can't have that when you're running a consolidated team. So you need to have one consolidated group that does revenue across all product lines, all customers that can work with the different business units, but pulls it together to make sure we're not double counting. So that consolidation revenue group is sometimes important. The third aspect is really what I would call more like a systems and processes group. And sometimes you have this in FP&A, sometimes it sits in IT. I've, I've been at organizations where it's been in both situations. And this is where you have an EPM tool or an ERP tool. I mean, a good example, Planful is a, is a, is a fantastic EPM tool. And when you're using that EPM tool, you have to manage it. You have to have someone who has a little bit of an IT project manager background to be able to manage the hierarchies, the data feeds, all that kind of stuff, build out the right templates. But they also have to have that knowledge of FP&A and how FP&A works to understand what the needs of the business are to adapt the system to, to create the best template or the best tool. So I always like to have that quasi finance slash IT person in the, in the, in the FP&A group that can help manage the data flow because at the end of the day, it's you know garbage in, garbage out. If you have bad data coming in, it's gonna be, your, your results are gonna be meaningless. So you gotta have the good data quality. You have to have good data governance. You have to have the system that's set up in the right way. So having that kind of a team I found is incredibly valuable. Now, whether it's an IT or FP&A, even if it's an IT, I always consider them part of my team, incorporating them into my team meetings, team lunches, whatever else it would be, because they are that critical. So to me, I kind of see those three different functions. You got your business partner team, you got your kind of consolidation revenue team that will also do that really high level, hey CEO, here's the whole business type, type of reporting. And then you have your more technical, making sure the data is correct, where everybody is lining, you know, the data is lined up in the right way, got the right templates kind of a team. That's excellent. Thank you so much. I, I think, you know, where we, we hear a lot um, from, from folks talking about the business partnering side of FP&A and, um, you know, all of the skill sets involved around that, and we don't hear as much about what you talked about, you know, consolidation is obviously very important, um, but more around that, that reliance and, and need for strong IT. And, you know, mm -hmm. as I sit here, I've kind of, you know, I've, I've grown up in the, the marketing operations world, right? Marketing technologists and the craze that is marketing technology. I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen this slide, but uh, Scott Brinker is chiefmartech.com created this big ginormous slide of the 50,000 different MarTech vendors that exist to make marketers jobs easy. I think, well, finance is going through a similar growth right in terms of technology that is available to finance professionals on a more and more regular basis and and obviously i work at one of those companies um but what i've seen is is a lot of the back office transformation has failed because finance has not necessarily had the skill set that you talked about that um that systems and processes skill set to truly stand up those those um, initiatives, and it's so important that um, 
any finance team embarking on back office transformation, whether that be um, you know through RPA, through tools like you know planning tools like Planful, whether that be you know any treasury tools, whatever the the scope exists, that need for for really rigorous IT can't be understated in my mind. You know, I, I look at it this way. There's actually a very fine line between FP&A and IT in this role. If I'm going over and I'm building a model, what do I have to start with? I have to start with data. What's my data going to look like? I'm going to go into Excel. I'm going to go have my data tables that will go and have, you know, my periods and my, my customers, my products, my revenues, my expenses, whatever the heck I'm, I'm building a model around. I start with that big data table. I have to make sure that data table is defined in a certain way. I have to make sure that as I'm pulling things in, it is collectively exhaustive and mutually exclusive on all the different items. I can't have overlaps, right? So mm -hmm. if you think about it, that is the exact same way you define your dimensions in a system. And now you go and say, okay, I need to make sure my data is accurate. So when I'm pulling data out of, you know, let's say if I'm doing a headcount analysis and I'm pulling it out of an HRIS system, I need to make sure that the data is correct. Well, that's the same thing that you need from someone who's running your EPM solution. We need to have someone make sure that the data is correct. Build some integrity checks in there to ensure that you have the same data or that, that the data is 100% complete. There is such a fine line between this. And really what I have found is when you have somebody good in that role, an FP&A person can speak FP&A language and lingo to that person and they completely get it. At the same time, that person can also go and speak IT coding and you know uh, SQL server type, you know, query type thing that an FPNA person would be like, yeah, that's a whole different language. I don't know what you're talking about. But that IT person bridges those two gaps. Very similar to a finance business partner who is talking to somebody like yourself in marketing who you're gonna go and talk to uh, find your finance business partner in your language, which me as a finance business partner, I would have to understand, but I also have to turn around and talk to an accounting team in their language about accruals and journal entries and so on that you probably can't, can't speak that language. So I have to be that person who sits in between. It is very, very similar. And FP&A is usually that in-between person, whether it's around a system or it's around data, it's around a business, that goes over and takes information from one place and translates it for someone else. And because of that, you have a very similar type person, just with a little different kind of technical skill set. And when you have those two people working together, and I had a fantastic one uh, working with us over at Digital Realty, this guy was, was so fantastic. I was talking to him four times a week. And he was a, such a critical business partner, and I appreciated his insights. And as an IT person, he was coming back to me and saying, hey, I had an idea. I just saw the system just, you know, we had this new patch or this new new capability that came out. How can we incorporate that? And we started having a discussion about capabilities of FP&A, him coming from the system side, and I'm thinking from the business side. That partnership is just, it, it's incredible. When, it, when you have it, it adds so much value. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's... um. It's why I think there may be a burgeoning, um, you know, what 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 have you called that? Like uh, in in marketing, we call it marketing operations. Is is that what you've traditionally labelled it as in in your organisations? Uh, typically, you'll see FP and A systems, mm -hmm. uh, something like that. 
uh, where you could be on the system side and you're an IT person or you're sitting in FPNA running an FPNA system. Um, so you could, it really kind of sits in, in both worlds. Yeah, I, I believe there, there's this concept that's, that's occurring in, in marketing and sales called revenue operations. And I think mm-hmm. as, as back office transformation um, starts becoming more cloud first, more, um, more focused, I think what's going to happen is revenue operations is going to start including this concept of finance operations because you cannot, cannot um, run a revenue operations organization without the finance business partner. And typically that's someone that, that you know, is already the sales and marketing business partner. But I suspect over time that what we're going to see is this this new group within finance get created called finance operations. And they're going to be responsible, like you said, for the systems, for the operational processes is involved, for the governance of all of those processes, whether that be the, the technical governance, the data governance, the data models, the data architecture. And that's going to be a trend that we see over the next 10 years is, is certainly something that I see rather than relying on IT. I think it's going to be a skill set that, that the digital native finance audiences start bringing to, to finance itself. And I may well, be I completely wrong. You know, what you're talking maybe about. Galloway on that one. No, uh, I actually think that um, it's where, when I run an FP&A team, it's where I try and take FP&A. And the reason why I say that is I've worked with a lot of revenue operations teams. They are in, in marketing operations, uh, those groups and even HR operations, they have metrics and data that I want to have access to because I want to tell a fuller picture to my business units. I want to be able to say, hey, look, here's where what's driving your revenue, not just, yeah, you know what? Your revenue went up, your revenue went down. We call that elevator analysis, right? It doesn't really <laughs> add a lot of value. I want to answer why, what is going on? What is the driver behind that? What's the metric? Oh, that was driven by additional customers that came online or our revenue per customer went up because of these different factors. I want to incorporate that into the analysis, but I don't want to just incorporate the the written analysis. I want to put a financial report together for a business leader that says, here's your financials and here's your business metrics and here's how one drives the other. That connection, that complete story is really where the value is. Uh, I've actually done a presentation at several different FPA conferences. And I go and I ask people, what's your favorite type of pie? And people will come back, they'll say, oh, I like chocolate cream pie or apple pie, or you know, some people might say pizza pie. I've even had a shepherd's pie thrown out there or a sweet potato pie. And I say, you know what? All of those individually, fantastic pies. Now, if I went over and I said, we're all gonna take, make our be- our favorite piece of pie, and then we're gonna put that pie together. I don't know about you, but the middle of that's kind of disgusting, right? I don't wanna yeah. to be touching that. But if you're a business leader, you get your revenue data typically from one place, your expenses and your headcount maybe from another place, your product data from somewhere else, your client data from somewhere else, your market data from somewhere else. And you're getting all these different people, these different data from people who aren't working with each other. The data doesn't connect and you got it as a business leader, you got 17 different reports and you're trying to figure out what's the real story of what's going on. What if FPNA could source all of that, those metrics, pull it together into one place and tell that complete story. 
that to me is really where the future is. It's to connect that to so we're all baking the same kind of pie and it all fits together. So you could go and talk about, here's what's going on in the external market. Here's what happened with your clients and your products, which led to this revenue, which had this impact on your expenses and your personnel and connect all of those dots together. So really what you're talking about is where I try and take the FP&A teams. It is no system so far has been able to do that for me. And this is not an easy process. It takes a long time, but if you can get there, now I'm gonna tie it back to what we were talking about originally. Now you're doing both finance and strategy at the exact same time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is, that's the Nirvana that uh, we all aim to achieve is, um, is doing that, but also doing that in a way where those um, those cycle times are rapidly increased, right? Obviously, it takes a long time to get there, but when you're in that nirvana state and you can bring in all of that accounting information, that actuals data from sales, and and all of the expenses data as rapidly as possible, as well as fast moving, you know, workforce planning data then you're really in control of the business and you can you can advise the the leadership on those those rapid decisions that need to be made to capitalize on the opportunities that that a strategy team would be uh would be leading right that's right and the thing is and this is where fpna shoots itself in the foot oftentimes is that people come back to say no no, no i don't get into those business metrics i don't want to do that I, my focus is the P&L, the revenues, the expenses, that's what, that's what we're responsible for. That's where we're going to stay. And many times in my career, I've worked for people who have come back to me and said, no, no, no your, your scope, you're broadening your scope too much. No, you got to bring that back in. And my response is, if it impacts my work, if it impacts what I'm, what I'm doing and I'm not delivering, fine, let's have that conversation. But if, it, if I'm still delivering on everything that you need, let me go in this direction. And I have found that it takes very little effort once you're able to get the data. And the business loves it so much that they're typically calling up your boss anyway and the head of FPNA <laughs> saying, oh my God, this guy has completely changed the way I look at my business. And that's exactly what you want. So there, you have to kind of get out of the mindset of finance is only finance because as soon as you recognize that finance doesn't create the data, yes, accounting does journal entries, fine, and they go over and they put it together. But those journals are based on actions taken by the business. Working with a vendor is going to drive, in your, drive your expenses up. Bringing in new customers drives your revenues. That's what creates the data that goes into the general ledger. So why are you stopping at the finance team? Why are you stopping at what's in the general ledger? Go beyond that, go back to what is the original driver of the data. And now you could tell a much more complete story. Yeah, well, Glenn, I know we've uh, we've come up to, to almost uh, 50 minutes here. So I want to make sure I think there's definitely a part two in this. I'd love to have you back on on the uh, on the on the podcast and and keep talking because uh, you've obviously got a lot to share, a lot of insights, and and I know our listeners will really appreciate that. Is there any final words that you'd like to share with the listeners? You know, I would just say uh, it makes you happy. That's the biggest thing. If you enjoy your work, you're going to be great at it. You know, that's to me, though, if you're going to take anything out of me, I'm hoping that you, you can see that I have uh, a lot of enjoyment in the work that I have done. And don't get me wrong, I've failed many times in my career, <laughs> but 
I, I enjoy the work. I enjoy the challenge and the strategy. And if you go over, if you really like what you do, it doesn't become work anymore and you become much better at it. So I would leave, you know, leave you on that thought. Awesome. Well, Glenn, thank you very much. I hope you have a, a great rest of your day and uh, thanks, for, thanks for dropping by. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for stopping by.